Hello, this is Father John Arnold, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. Uh, people complain that they're just overwhelmed with the number of choices out there. Go to Amazon.com and try to figure out what you're going to buy or what you're going to do for supper or any of the other choices you make in your life. What choices do you really meaningfully have? Today we have a story from Genesis 22. God orders Abraham to kill his only son, the child of promise, Isaac. Take him up on Mount Moriah and slaughter him. What choice does he have when God tells him to do something? Well, it is a story about choices and what the meaning of choices are. And so this week on Oral Valley Catholic, the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. The second Sunday of Lent has as the first reading Genesis 22, and it's one of the most famous stories in Genesis. It's when God orders Abraham, it's the last story in the Abraham cycle, to go and take his only son, Isaac, and to slaughter him up on Mount Moriah. Wife's gone, he's supposed to kill his son. What is his life all about? Let's take a moment, listen to the part of the story that is read to us at Mass, and then, as Paul Harvey says, for the rest of the story. So, Genesis 22. God put Abraham to the test. He called to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son Isaac, your only one, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. There you shall offer him up as a holocaust on a height that I will point out to you. And when they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Then he reached out and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the Lord's messenger called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Do not lay your hand on the boy, said the messenger. Do not do the least thing to him. I know now how devoted you are to God, since you did not withhold from me your own beloved son. As Abraham looked about, he spied a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he went and took the ram and offered it up as a holocaust in place of his son. And again, the Lord's messenger called Abraham from heaven and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you acted as you did and not withholding from me your beloved son, I will bless you abundantly and make your descendants as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. Your descendants shall take possession of the gates of their enemies, and in your descendants all the nations of the earth shall find blessing. All this because you obeyed my command. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there's some things left out of that story, which I will point out later, but in the very least, uh, it is what is called an etiological story or an etiological myth. And the idea of an etiological myth explains why we do it this way and not another way. So um, Israel existed in a world where child sacrifice went on around them. Modern archaeologists debate that, but pretty clearly from the ancient record, people sacrificed their children. 
So the story in Genesis 22, the last story we hear about Abraham, is the reason why Jewish people are not supposed to sacrifice their children. Remember book of Genesis, Adam and Eve, families at the core of the Jewish religious faith. It's very important at the core of, if you will, the Catholic faith, because God is our Father, and all of our families somehow participate in this larger story of God. And we do not sacrifice our children. We don't abort them. We don't pass them through the fire. We don't take them up on Mount Moriah and shove a knife through their neck. We do not do that. We nurture our children. Why? Well, even if others are doing it, we know that God does not require us to do that. You can take that as a simple message out of Genesis 22, and I would say you have done well. But is there more to the story? And there always is in Scripture. There's always a literal meaning why we don't sell, why we don't sacrifice our children. But there's a much deeper significance for what it means to come up against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, especially in the families with the ones we love, when it doesn't make much sense. You know, Abraham is a name that literally means the father of multitudes. And remember, he was born Abram, and God gave him the name Abraham because he makes these three promises which are at the core of the Scripture. <clears throat> I will make your descendants as countless as the stars of the uh, seashore. I will give your descendants the possession of the gates of their enemies. I'll give you a land, and uh, your descendants shall be a blessing on everybody because Jesus is a blessing on everybody. And as remember from the Gospel of Matthew, um, he is a descendant of Abraham. But uh, what does it mean God will provide the sacrifice? And how is Abraham's trust in God demonstrated just because he's willing to do something morally evil to kill his son? Does Abraham trust that even if he does something bad, it's going to turn out with him? Why? Because God told him to do it. You know, and there's all sorts of people who think God told them to do awful things. And that first line, God put Abraham to the test. What does that mean? Because, you know, when we pray in the Our Father, to remember we say, um, lead us not into temptation. Literally, do not put us to the test. Don't put us up against something that's going to overwhelm him. So let's take a step back into uh, the Abraham story in Genesis and ask exactly how this story fits into Genesis and how others have looked at this over the ages and what we should take out of it. This week on Oral Valley Catholic. The binding of Isaac in Genesis 22. You know, the church has put together for the second Sunday of Lent, the binding of Isaac alongside with Mark's telling of the transfiguration of the Lord, where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He goes up on a mountain, just like Abraham took Isaac upon a mountain, but he's being transfigured before them. Moses and Elijah appear. And then they talk about the coming exodus that's coming out of, uh, 
out of Jerusalem at Jesus' crucifixion. So there are some obviously thematic similarities between the two stories. But before we talk about the transfiguration, let's talk about the ways historically Genesis 22 has been understood because it too is a weird story. So here's the first way it's been understood. And I get this from Leon uh, Cass's book on Genesis, The Beginning of Wisdom. And uh, he's a Jewish uh, man. He, he served in the United States government, uh, the Department of Health, I think. Um, and he's just such a brilliant guy. Uh, but here's what he says, one of the ways that it's been understood. And that is this, don't take Yahweh for granted. Remember, one of the sins that we, we can confess in, in, during Lent, maybe at the St. Mark Penitential Service, which is coming up in mid-March, is uh, don't take Yahweh for granted. The sin of presumption. And presumption is when you just call God to kind of back up anything that you're going to do. Um, the idea is it's okay to do something because God is on my side. And so to put that into perspective, you have to look at this story of Genesis 22 in perspective. In order to do that, you go back to Genesis 21 and you ask, what happened just before God decided to put Abraham to the task? Because remember, that's how this story starts out. And so this is in Genesis 21. It's called the covenant at Beersheba. And here's what it says. At that time, Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. So now swear to me by God at this place that you will not deal falsely with me, with my progeny and posterity, but will act as loyally toward me and the land in which you reside as I have acted toward you. Now think of that in regard to God's promises to Abraham about God uh, giving Abraham the land. Uh, Abimelech is asking that when you get the land, you're going to be loyal to me. So Abraham replied, I so swear. That maybe is not the smartest thing to say, given what's going to happen. Abraham, however, reproached Abimelech about a well that Abimelech's servants had seized by force. So they're, now they're having a fight. I have no idea who did that, Abimelech replied. He's lying. In fact, you never told me about it, nor did I ever hear it from you till now. So what are you jumping me with this about? Then Abraham took sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two made a covenant. So God makes a covenant with Abraham. Abraham is making this very poorly thought through covenant with Abimelech. Abraham also set apart seven new lambs of the flock. And Abimelech asked him, what is the purpose of those seven new lambs that you have set apart? It's going to be a sacrifice. Abraham answered, the seven new you lambs you shall accept from me that you may be my witness that I dug this well. This is why the place is called Beersheba, which is still in the very south of Israel. The two of them took an oath there. And when they had thus made the covenant in Beersheba, Abimelech, along with Phicol, the commander of his army, left to return to the land of the Philistines. Don't trust the Philistines, Abraham. Abraham planted a tamarisk at Beersheba, and there he invoked by name the Lord God the Eternal. Abraham resided in the land of the Philistines for a long time. So, long story short, 
Abraham's not relying on God who has promised to give him this land. He's trying to cut a deal with Abimelech. This is not a good idea. And because he's going to get by uh, negotiation what God has promised him uh, through divine power. And so put that in your mind that the very next story is God comes to Abraham to put him to the test. How much does he really trust God? Because if you if you have to go out to the Abimelechs of the world to try to get from them by giving them, get something from them that God has promised you through seven new lambs, you know, maybe God is trying to gonna pull you back and remind you of who brought you to the dance. So one of the ways of understanding the Akedah, Genesis 22, and this whole story about the binding of Isaac is um, God's reminding him of his promise and where the promise comes from, God, and who's going to keep the promise, God. So Abimelech and the Philistines do not have the authority to give it to you. So when you're asking certain things in life and uh, you go out into the marketplace, the world, to try to get them, can you really get eternal life from someone? You get eternal peace. Can you get from the world, the Abimelechs of the world, the Philistines of the world, what only God can promise? So that's actually a pretty good way of understanding the story of the binding of Isaac. But on the other side of all that, to tell you that you have to take your son, the future, and you have to murder him, and this is supposed to uh, bring you back to reality because you made a bad deal with Abimelech, seems a little over the top. But yet, there's a good point to be, to be made there. Trust that Yahweh will keep his promises because Abimelech sure as heck won't because like two seconds after you made the first promise, he denied that you'd ever dug the well. That's the story of Genesis 21. So what's another way of understanding Genesis 22, the binding of Isaac? Well, here's another one. Trust in Yahweh. Um, you, you know, if you just say about almost any Bible story, you're supposed to trust in God, um, then, uh, you know, you never go far wrong. Uh, it's just actually trusting in God um, that's difficult, especially when it seems like how will his promises ever come true? This world is such a mess. But, you know, here's the thing uh, about how to think about it. So when the church gives us readings, often enough, if you look in the Missalette, you'll notice that a longer story's been cut down for the sake of uh, brevity, though uh, maybe it doesn't always seem brief to you. But if you look at the reading for the second Sunday of Lent from Genesis 22, you'll see that the part the church has included is the verses from Genesis 22 of verses 1 to 2, then half of verse 9, then verse 10 to 13, and then verse 15 to 18. So actually quite a lot's been cut out. Let's go through at least part of what's been cut out. So do you remember uh, in the beginning of the reading as I read it, God's gonna put Abraham to the test. Abraham, here. Well, that's basically verses one and two. And then here's the part that's cut out. Because remember in the reading, they're already on top of the mountain as the reading goes and he's getting ready to slaughter Isaac. But this is verses three through nine, which were cut out. And I think it's important to understanding um, the idea of trusting in Yahweh and Yahweh um, coming through with his promises. 
Um, so here they are. Early the next morning, Abraham saddled his donkey and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And after cutting the wood for the burnt offering, set up for the place of which God had told him. That'd be Mount Moriah, which in scripture is associated with Mount uh, Zion, where, where the temple is built in uh, Jerusalem. So this story is saying Abraham, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on the very spot that uh, King Solomon built the temple. Little side note. On the third day, Abraham caught sight of the place from a distance. Abraham said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go on over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So worship always requires sacrifice. When people ask, do you worship the Virgin Mary? We do not sacrifice to Mary. We pray to Mary. We ask her to remember us in her prayers, just like you ask your own mother or your friends to remember you in prayer. The difference between worship and veneration is sacrifice. And this is the one of the first places in Scripture where it's pointed out. So they're going to go worship by sacrifice. Verse 6. So Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Well, think about that. Isaac's carrying the wood up the mountain to where uh, he's going to be burnt and offered up to God as a holocaust. Um, Jesus carries the wood of the cross up Mount Calvary. You see why um, this story might be selected uh, for this week. And so Isaac's carrying the, the wood up the mountain. Um, and then it says, uh, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, laid it on his son Isaac, and while he himself carried the fire and the knife, so a box of waterproof matches and a, and a buoy knife. And as the two walked on together, Isaac spoke to his father Abraham. Father, he said, here I am, he replied, just like he said with God, here I am. Hineni is the Hebrew word. Isaac continued, here are the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? My son, Abraham answered, God will provide the sheep for the burnt offering. Then the two walked on together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he bound his son Isaac and put him on top of the wood on the altar. So that's where the story takes back up and what we'll read on Sunday. But that's a pretty moving part of the story, right? And one of the things why I want to bring it out is Think about how the story in Holy Week is really rooted in Genesis 22, that Genesis 22, God will provide the sacrifice. He'll carry the wood of the offering himself. Why it is the early Christians wanted you to know that Jesus carried that cross up Mount Calvary, which is right next over from Mount Zion and out the gates of the city. So trust in Yahweh. And what's the trust in Yahweh? Well, Akedah means the binding of Isaac. And so we know that the angel stops Abraham from killing his son. And as Abraham said, God himself provide the sacrifice. So at the heart of it, what can you and I do to bind ourselves to God? How do we sacrifice to God? Because he gives us everything, Right. So that he should give us his only son. You know, I think this is one of those situations in Scripture where God is inspiring Scripture because he's going to fulfill it in a way 
that the whole world will understand because understanding Jesus with the background of being the Father, Son, and the sacrifice and how God provides, well, trust in Yahweh. And what's it mean to trust in Yahweh? God will provide, probably in a way that we don't really understand, except through hindsight. Remember, Soren Kierkegaard said this, we live life going forward, uh, but we understand it going backwards. Because I'm going to talk about Kierkegaard before the end of this, path, this, this podcast. So here's the third way to understand it. So remember, it's uh, God puts Abraham to the test because Abraham commits the sin of presumption. Or um, God should be trusted. He will provide for what we need uh, in order to please him. And we just need to cooperate with that. And here's the third. How about this? When you, have to, when you think about God, is God irrational? Like he promises Abraham uh, numerous descendants, but then requires him to kill his son. And then, oh, then he changes his mind and goes back. That's irrational. Is God non-rational? Well, like a force. Or is God simply beyond human reason and understanding? Well, obviously in hindsight, uh, this story is not about irrationality. Um, God is a person, and so he's not a non-rational uh, thing, a force like gravity. That's not God. But that God is beyond human reason, and since he's beyond human reason, he doesn't always make perfect sense to us. I think this is an important story about understanding God. It comes up again in the story about Moses, where there are two sons of Aaron, Adab and Abihu, uh, who go in to offer an incense offering to Yahweh and destroys them both with lightning. Um, why? Because Yahweh did not ask for incense from them. The story doesn't explain itself. Is it just more like the book of Genesis that uh, God acts, human beings don't understand, um, but that in hindsight, maybe you see the need to just trust God and just do what he says. So, you know, um, choices, because this is the thing about choosing. What's Abraham's real choices? Can he disobey God and not walk up the hill to see what happens? Does he obey God and do something that God finds to be morally repugnant? You know, um, the thing about choices and the choices we make is we don't always understand how they're going to turn out. Even if we make choices that we know are moral choices, does that mean that everything's going to turn out the way we want it to turn out in the wake of that choice? I think that's an unwise approach to life. I think the best we do uh, understanding that God's purposes are beyond us is we just make the most faithful choices that we can make and then we just go from there. And so let's stop and let's go to the gospel and talk about the nature of choices. So the gospel is about the transfiguration. I know you know the story, but let me read it to you again. Mark chapter nine. Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves, just like the Akedah. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzlingly white, as no fuller on earth could bleach them. 
Then Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, the prophets in the law, and they were conversing with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You hardly knew what to say. They were so terrified. Jesus isn't always nice. Sometimes he's just scary. Then a cloud came, casting a shadow over them. From the cloud came a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone but Jesus alone with them. As they were coming down from the mountain, he charged them not to relate what they had seen to anyone, except when the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matters to themselves, questioning what rising from the dead meant. Okay, the aqueduct. Did Peter, James, and John know everything's going to happen? How do you go from this closeness to God, where you see him dazzlingly white? You know, the idea of the chosen, I love the show. But boy, they, they, so far, they haven't really captured how scary Jesus was. Because awed and wonder and terrified, these are words that they use for these disciples who loved him. But there was something about him that was so beyond understanding. And they could get sucked into the beauty of the power of God, his healing, his forgiveness. But then there's this other part. So they're up on the mountaintop, and we have mountaintop experiences. But the next thing you know, they're going down into the valley. And so what does he say? Don't tell anyone about this until I've been raised from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, not knowing what it meant to be raised from the dead. What choices do you have? You follow. You don't really know what's going to happen. You don't really understand it. You like some of it. Some of it scares the heck out of you. And then you don't even know what the future is going to bring. What is the nature of the choices we have? And that's what I'd like to talk about at the very last part of Oro Valley Catholic. What happens when your choices are not always clear where they're going to go? When Abraham talks to Abimelech, he thinks he's negotiating a deal, but ends up just being a quagmire. Abimelech is just not trustworthy, but he's got this covenant with Abimelech, costs him seven more lambs. Then Abraham trusts God. Uh, How would you understand that? And so there's a famous book called Fear and Trembling written by Soren Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard is a Danish philosopher, lived in Copenhagen, very famous from about the middle of the 19th century. And uh, the work Fear and Trembling is like notoriously hard to understand, but it seems to go back and forth between two ways of understanding the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac. And uh, it's two ways like this. Is Abraham a the father of faith who even when it looks crazy, he'll still trust God, and even so much that he'll do something as murderous, thinking God will bring good of this? Or is Abraham just a madman? And if God tells him to whack somebody, he whacks him. He'll just uh, talk, follow a God who makes no sense. And really at the heart of it in the discussion is the relationship between faith and reason. When people talk about fear and trembling, Kierkegaard's work, they sometimes talk about what they believe his conclusion is. And so the phrase that they use, though Kierkegaard never 
said it, but you've heard it. It's you just have to take a leap of faith. And the leap of faith is trusting God. The problem why that gets criticized is the idea that faith is not rational at all, that you just have to do this. You hear it this way. There's no evidence for any of this stuff, you know, and so you just have to jump out into the darkness. And sometimes it feels that way. But, you know, that's not the way to think about it. And that's probably the wrong way to think about Kierkegaard. Faith is rational. It's completely rational. But only if you believe that there's meaning and purpose to life. Because the, the choices that Abraham has when God commands him to kill Isaac, the choice that Peter, James, and John have when Jesus leads them down the hill uh, and says, don't talk about this until after I've been raised from the dead. The only choice you have is, do I believe that my life is going someplace beyond what I can understand? Or is it just cash on the barrel head? Got to negotiate the best deal I can. Give them seven, seven lambs if this will get me the right to use this well. God said I could have this land, but he hasn't produced the way that I know giving seven you lambs will produce with Abimelech. Do you really trust the world that much? Because at the heart of it, underlying all the choices you and I have, the one choice that rings through it all is, is there meaning and purpose in life? Is that explained to me by the, the faith? by Jesus coming as man? Do I accept that that is the most rational way to understand my life? Or, uh, wow, it's like a marketplace out there. You can make any choices you want. You can become a consumerist. You can give your life to passion and sexual pleasure. You can go into drugs because they make you feel good. If what you're really ultimately looking for is a religion where God doesn't really ask anything of you. He's disconnected from the world. It's moralistic. That is, you make moral decisions as long as you think they'll work for you, and it's therapeutic. Most of all, what I want out of religion is it makes me feel good about myself. Well, that's not going anywhere. God is always active in the world. That's the story of Scripture, that there is a purpose and meaning even to the irrationality we get in bits and pieces off the front page of the paper. That the moral life is a life that keeps us rooted and in conversation with God, the way God's world is supposed to be. And we can only make the moral choices that we have the capacity to make. And that religion, is it therapeutic? Does it make me always feel good? Heck no. There is no therapeutic aspect of religion. Sometimes it has consolation. But what Jesus says, not therapy, but the cross. And so when they walk down the hill, will you pick up your cross and follow him wherever he's going? So what are your choices? Your life's going someplace, it's been explained to you, and Jesus is leading you, or, I don't know, for my two cents, I, none of the other choices seem like they have any prospect at all of paying off. Ultimately, maybe there's one choice. You just trust in God or you don't. And so the Akedah, this is Abraham. What's his choices? Trust in God. See you next week.